Robots Radio. Games. Lore. Stories. Community. Just press play. Robots Radio presents... You're listening to the Dungeons & Dragons Lorecast, the best way for everyone from experienced dungeon masters to those curious about D&D to learn more about the worlds, creatures, and lore of Dungeons & Dragons. Dear listener, welcome to the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast, your one-stop shop for the who's, what's, why's, and huhs behind the characters, monsters, and everything in between of the world's most popular role-playing game. My name is Sergio, and I will be your lore master this week. So the year is 2022, and I can remember as far back as early 2012 or late 2012, early 2013 that something was happening, something in the zeitgeist with Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, The game was featured heavily in an episode of the fan-favorite sitcom Community in 2011, uh, the episode aptly titled Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. All of Community's episodes were named as if they were um, college courses. Uh, But that felt more like nerds reflecting on nerdy things, kind of like the characters in the movie Clerks discussing the destruction of the second Death Star. Clerks uh, Clerks came out in 1994 before the Star Wars original trilogy special edition came out. So at the time, Star Wars wasn't really the global powerhouse intellectual property that it is today. It was just kind of this thing that nerds chatted about with other nerds. Um, like on the internet, in at conventions, but it wasn't sort of like in the mainstream, so to so to speak. All that to say, the episode of Community felt like that. Uh, but really, it was the first crack in the dam. Dan Harmon, the creator of Community, began his Harmon Town podcast, which ended each episode with a D and uh, D session. This eventually became its own live play show called Harmon Town. Um, comedians Brian Posehn and Blaine Kapach started their own live play called Nerd Poker and of course there is Critical Role. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is currently having what is known as a quote moment. It's wildly popular and Wizards of the Coast are posting record profits for its D&D division. I mean there's even a Critical Role animated series, a D&D cartoon. Can you believe it? I never would have imagined Except it already happened. D&D has already had a similar moment not long after the game was created. In the early 80s, Dungeons & Dragons was stupid popular, had its own animated series, a show about six kids who ride an amusement park roller coaster into the realm of Dungeons & Dragons. In addition to a Saturday morning cartoon, which really was the benchmark for popularity in the 1980s. You really weren't shit in the 80s if you weren't somewhere between CBS Story Break and the real Ghostbusters, let's be honest. Uh, the game was popular enough to even warrant a toy line, the second half of the ultimate 1980s children consumerism 
Um, and it's from this toy line that we get the subject of this week's episode. We will be covering the dreaded War Duke in the first half. And in the second half of the show, we will dive into the lore behind his cohorts, uh, Kellek, Zarak, and the rest of the League of Malevolence. So the year is 1983. The folks at TSR have been working with Marvel Productions as in Marvel Comics, as in Marvel Studios, as in, you know, the rulers of the box office for the past 10, 15 years uh, on developing a Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. Simultaneously, TSR is also working with LGN, a prominent toy and video game company of the time, uh, to develop a action figure line. Also, this lore master was born in 1983. So all in all, a banner freaking year. So what was interesting about the toy line is that it didn't include any of the already well-known characters associated with Dungeons and Dragons. There was no Mordekainen action figure, uh, no Strahd or Demogorgon or any of the other villainous creatures your party might have battled while playing the game. The only connection with an already existing character was a toy for a mage elf who was originally named Melf, but whose name was later changed to Paralay. Instead, the shelves saw heroes like Strongheart and Elkhorn and villains like Warduke. Now, Warduke was a powerful human warrior and one of the 13 hierarchs of the Horned Society. He often found work as a bounty hunter or as an assassin and is described as cruel and heartless. So after making his debut as an action figure, Warduke's first appearance in the TTRPG realm was as a pre-made character in the book The Shady Dragon Inn. It's an accessory book and included all the characters from the toy line giving a basic stat block for each and a short biography of sorts for each. This was followed the next year by the adventure module, Quest for the Hearthstone. 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 Uh, This adventure also featured many of the original characters from the toy line. Like, so pretty much cementing their transition from toy, from action figure, to full-blown D&D character. So in the adventure it's revealed that Duke was an old friend of Stronghearts until they were both exposed to the Hearthstone and War Duke's uh, malice, his cruel nature was brought out, uh, who he really was, while uh, Stronghearts' just nature became stronger. So really kind of like amplified who they really were at their core. This animosity was teased in the Shady Dragon Inn accessory book with this quote, which is attributed to War Duke. He says, a true fighter makes himself rich and powerful by the strength of his sword arm. He takes what he can. If you would keep your possessions, kill those who seek to take them. So he's, he's pretty, means business pretty much. Uh, additionally, War Duke made the leap to the small screen appearing in the fifth episode of the first season of the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. The episode called in search of the dungeon master sees war duke capturing the dungeon master character and then essentially holding him for ransom until the six heroes save the day so now that we've covered war duke's earliest publication and media appearances 
what of the character's history, what, what is in his history book, what is in his biography. This is interesting because there's not a whole lot uh, for a character uh, with such an iconic and striking look. Information about him is fairly sparse. So details about War Duke's early life are they're pretty much unknown since his identity itself isn't known to anyone. It's hard to Google someone if you don't even know what to type in the search bar, pretty much. Uh, really, the only thing we do know is that aforementioned friendship between himself and Strongheart, which soured and turned into a bitter, bitter rivalry. Uh, one theory, however, claims Duke, War Duke and Melf may actually know each other. But as previously mentioned, one of the characters from the action figure line was originally named Melf, but then the name was changed to Paralay. Perhaps Paralay was a pseudonym of the elf. This possible connection is made all the more interesting as in 2003, War Duke was officially retconned into the Greyhawk campaign setting. Speaking of Greyhawk, Dungeon Magazine issue 105 has this to say about War Duke and his reign of terror in the Flannis. A ruthless fighter named War Duke, a mysterious and relentless killer who emerged from nowhere after the Greyhawk Wars to spread terror and uncertainty among mercenaries, soldiers, and fighting societies from the barrier peaks to the Solnar Ocean. War Duke is the soldier's boogeyman, the opponent seasoned veterans least hope to see when the battlefield fog clears and reveals the forces of the enemy. Tavern tales suggest War Duke's hand in the destruction of several complete adventuring parties, including Greyhawk's Company of the Sundered Shield and the Ramhorn's Alliance of Kendall. So as much as War Duke is known for his battle prowess and cruelty, he is almost just as well known for his appearance and his weapons. First, let's describe his helm, his helmet. Uh, it's a blue helmet which completely covers his face. The only thing visible from the darkness and shadows are two eerie, baleful, glowing red eyes. No one knows what War Duke's true face looks like. The only clue is that the visage behind the helmet is that of a grim, hideous, hideously scarred gladiator. And if staring into this void of a face with two glowing red eyes wasn't intimidating enough, on either side of the helmet are bat wing-like ridges. Now, one might wonder, despite War Duke appearing to be human, why his eyes are glowing red. Is it the result of uh, something infernal flowing through his veins, perhaps? Or maybe War Duke made a deal with some demon or devil for increased strength and power, you know, that which would make it easier to slay foes in combat in exchange for something like his soul. And his glowing red eyes are testament to that bargain. Uh, either one of those could easily work in your campaign uh, as you see fit, because the actual reason, at, uh, at least in my humble opinion, uh, falls a little flat. War Duke isn't the offspring of a human and a fiend love affair, uh, nor did he make any deals with any devils. His helmet is 
magic. It's just magic. It's just a magic helmet. It's actually a wondrous item known as a dread helm. The fearsome steel helm makes your eyes glow red and hides the rest of your face in shadow while you wear it. Pretty much it. That's all. That's all it is. Like I said, uh, not nearly as cool as what you, dear listener, may be able to imagine. And um, as a result, in this case, I say let your imagination run wild. And to help you along that path, I present you with some third edition stats of War Duke's helmet, which is considered a major artifact and has three rubies embedded in it between the eyes in an upside down, upside down triangle formation. Now, this version of the helmet is definitely cooler than what is in the Wild Beyond the Witchlight Trust. So gives a little more oomph to the War Duke, uh, in my opinion, and would, and would give a little more oomph to the War, du- uh, War Duke in your campaign, if you see fit. So it says this, War Duke gained his helm from the unnameable hierarch himself as payment for a particularly destructive and successful mission. The helm is infused with powerful evil and bestows two negative levels upon any non-evil creature that puts it on. If a lawful good creature puts on the helm, the faceplate vanishes and long spikes begin to grow from the inner surface of the helm, dealing 2d6 points of slashing damage per round to the victim. So characters with any kind of neutral alignment or chaotic good, and especially lawful good, need not apply. Evil doers only, please. Okay, so you're evil. You put on the helm. What can you expect? Well, you can expect this. An evil creature gains several benefits by wearing the helm. It grants low light vision to the wearer, as well as a natural armor bonus equal to his charisma modifier, or at least a plus one, if their charisma modifier is zero. Also, in addition, a plus 10 modifier to intimidation checks, spell resistance of 10 plus the character's level, as well as complete immunity from all charm spells. Like I said, this is a much cooler and better version of the helmet. Okay, so now what about them rubies? What them rubies doing? So, The faceplate of the helm is set with three rubies, one of which is much larger than the other two. The two smaller rubies each allow the wearer to cast Death Knell. The the Death Knell spell hasn't officially made its way to 5th edition, but it's very easy to homebrew. Some quick homebrew tweaking uh, on this spell from previous editions would mean uh, when a creature you see within five feet of you dies, you gain 1d8 temporary hit points and your weapon attacks your weapon attacks deal 1d4 extra damage it states that warduke can utilize both rubies at once but we all know uh, temporary hit points and spell effects do not stack so it's up to you how you'd like to proceed perhaps warduke's helm is an exception to the rule which makes him all the more dangerous which means that he would be able to utilize both rubies at once, gained a possible uh, 2d8 temporary hit points and 2d4 extra damage on weapon attacks. Or perhaps he can use both rubies, but only one at a time. And each has some sort of cooldown period before it can be used again. 
And finally, while the spell is in effect, while the death knell spell is in effect, the 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 ruby will glow will uh, glow brightly, glow bright red. You know, rubies are red. Makes sense. So the larger ruby that can store a single spell up to sixth level, similar to that uh, to the effect of a ring of spell storing. And it says that Warduke keep, typically keeps a word of recall spell stored in case the tide of battle begins to turn away from him and any comrades that he has on the battlefield. Now, a word of recall, of course, allows you and up to five willing creatures within five feet of you to teleport to a previously designated sanctuary. And you got to make sure that sanctuary is designated. Otherwise, the spell has no effect. But essentially, it's um, it's a, a GTFO. It's you're yeeting yourself off the battlefield in the parlance of the youth of today. Uh, so next, let us discuss his armor. It's described as a half suit of blue scale armor, uh, but it really only covers his left and right, uh, left um, arm and left leg. So like quarter chain. I don't know. Um, anyway, the staff from Dungeon Magazine describes this seemingly illogical setup as ceremonial armor and had this to say about it. Ceremonial armor is typically worn not for combat, but for show or to intimidate or impress. A suit of ceremonial armor costs twice as, normal, t- twice as much as normal masterwork armor, but it is not necessarily itself masterwork and consists of half the actual armor of a normal suit. It goes on to say that it weighs half as much as normal armor, but also only provides half the AC bonus. So it seems as if ceremonial armor is exactly what it may, what its name sounds like. It's armor that you would wear for some kind of ceremony. It's essentially cosplay armor meant to look like but not necessarily provide all the benefits of the real thing. So why would Warduke wear this? I believe the answer to this question lies in the fact it is made to, quote, intimidate or impress. If I'm on the battlefield and I see this giant hulking brute of a man with glowing red eyes wearing a metal AF bat-winged helmet, but is only wearing chainmail armor on one arm and one leg. He's basically telling me, he's telling all opponents, yes, I have access to armor. I can procure it easily. But I want you to know, I don't want it, nor do I need it to kill the likes of you. It's no wonder Warduke was the scourge of the Flannis. So now, what about Warduke's weapon and shield? According to the Wild Beyond the Witchlight Adventure, his main weapon, the Warduke does have a standard dagger as well that does a plus that is a plus six to hit. Uh, his main weapon is a flame tongue longsword named Nightwind. Not surprisingly, it is a flaming sword, uh, which can be ignited or extinguished with a bonus action. It also is a plus six to hit and does 1d8 plus three slashing damage if wielded one-handed but 1d10 plus 3 damage if Warduke uses two hands to swing. Either way, it also does 2d6 fire damage when uh, instead of uh, flame. 
The kicker here is Warduke makes three attacks per turn. Previous editions of Warduke's sword describe it as a broadsword or a bastard sword. Pick whichever you prefer, dear listener. Uh, His shield bears the sign of a demon's head, and aside from looking totally badass, it operates as a basic shield. Um, Nothing, you know, like I said, just it's pure aesthetics, nothing special about it. Uh, If you want to add some sort of magical effect to it in your campaign, by all means, do so and let me know what you decided. I'd love to know. And finally, Warduke is usually found mounted atop a nightmare, the flying demon horse. And that pretty much describes Warduke's armor and weapons. Well, dear listener, now that we have discussed Warduke himself, let's take a look and dive into his associate's in the League of Malevolence. But first, let's take that trip into the middle of the show. Welcome, dear listener, to the middle of the show. It's during the middle of the show, we uh, we like to thank our patrons. We like to uh, bring up any recent Dungeons & Dragons news that may have broke. Uh, we also like to talk about any upcoming miniatures that may have been announced. And it's also where we like to uh, take a look at some of the homebrew content uh, that's available on the dmsguild.com. So first up, let's thank our patrons. This week, a special shout out to our May babies. Uh, these two folks joined the Patreon last month, Peter M. and Darkwing. Thank you so much for joining the community, being a part of the family. Uh, we we hope you're long. We're, you hope, we're over here for the long ride because I got I got a lot to say about D and D. Hopefully, you want to listen to it uh, at Patreon.com/slash/DndLoreCast. We have four levels of patronage. The apprentice tier at five dollar gets you ad free and early episodes plus a D and D Lorecast sticker pack. The ten dollar scholar tier gets you that plus. Uh, access to patron plus bonus content for each episode in addition to other perks and the $25 wizard tier ups the ante by adding a D&D Lorecast t-shirt immediately upon signing up and then more swag every six months as well as an invitation to our world famous monthly patron roundtable and then finally our redesigned deity tier at $75 gets you everything I have already mentioned, plus some really cool perks like having myself or Crit guest star during a session of one of your campaigns, or even have the D&D Lorecast crew run a one-shot for you and your friends, or have the D&D Lorecast crew um, workshop a campaign setting or an adventure that you've been working on. We built the Patreon with all this stuff, all these perks, all these benefits, um, stuff that we felt would be essentially like worth the money that you're, that you're spending. So if you are able, please consider joining the fine folks who have already paid their hard-earned copper, silver, and gold to help financially support the show. Um, you know, all the, all the money we make off Patreon allows us to make the show bigger and better. It helps to fund cool projects. Like we're going to compile, we're going to compile the first 100 episodes worth of magic items of the week, 
and make a PDF of it. And we're, we have to, we're going to commission artwork for it. We're going to pay artists to draw this stuff up and we're going to make a PDF and submit it on DMs Guild. And it helps us put together really cool contests like the one that we're running right now. So through June 30th at 11.59 p.m., we are raffling off eight D&D 5th edition rulebooks. Included is the core rulebook gift set, which comes with the player's handbook. It comes with the Dungeon Master's Guide. It comes with the Monster Manual. It comes with the DM screen, and it all comes inside as a really cool slipcase. Also included in the contest are, uh, are copies of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, Volo's Guide to Monsters, Xanathar's Guide to Everything, Mordecanan's Tome of Foes, and Fizbin's Treasury of Dragons. One ticket to the raffle costs you four U.S. dollars, and three costs you ten U.S. dollars. A winner will be announced on the July seventh show, and one hundred percent of the proceeds, every single dime from ticket sales, will go to the Critical Role Foundation. Now, for those of you who don't know, Critical Role Foundation is a charity that was started by the folks at Critical Role by Matt Mercer and his group of nerdy voice actors. And it's a fantastic charity. They do a lot of great work and we're excited to be able to um, to help them. We're excited that we're in a position, we have a community that, um, that can do some good. So much like the Patreon, if you are able to, please consider participating as it does go to a very noble cause. And... Finally, so what does the DMs Guild hold for us this week? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with Warduke. I'll just put that out there right now. Uh, but I am excited all the same for this week's entry, which just came out a few days ago. From the same folks who brought you the Rise of Vecna, the adventure we highlighted a couple weeks back, comes Doomed Forgotten Realms, Sword Coast Gazetteer. The So the Doom Forgotten Realms series reimagines the Forgotten Realms as a world where every worst-case scenario became reality. The demons claimed the Underdark. Baldur's Gate was dragged into the Nine Hells. Arl froze all of Icewind Dale, and dragon cults summoned Tiamat to rain down terror. Sword Coast Gazetteer is the latest in the series, and is over 70 pages detailing how to run a campaign in this much darker setting. You'll find information on the six factions, which now rule the Sword Coast, plus five new subclasses, in addition to a bunch of other cool content, chock full of amazing art on every page. And the most incredible part is this PDF is only $8.99, for less than $10, you can get this incredible homebrew content. It's an absolute steal for the content you're receiving. Doom Forgotten Realms, Sword Coast Gazetteer, available now on DMs Guild. A link, of course, is available in show notes. You will not regret making this purchase. I guarantee it. That is your D&D Lorecast Choom! stamp of approval guarantee. All right. All that being said, let's head to the end of the show, shall we? Welcome to the end of the show. So we have spent our time so far 
dear listener, discussing the mysterious and cruel war duke. What little knowledge we have of his past, his armor and weapons, and his dealings with the hero's strong heart. Warduke prefers to work alone, but when necessary, there are a few villains he will stand shoulder to shoulder with. These ne'er-do-wells are the League of Malevolence, and most find their origins alongside Warduke in the Dungeons & Dragons toy line from the early 80s, as well as appearing in the aforementioned Shady Dragon Inn accessory book and the Quest for the Hearthstone adventure. Unlike Warduke, however, most essentially drifted to the fringes of D&D until they were brought back last year in the Wild Beyond the Witchlight adventure. But who are the League of Malevolence? I thought you'd never ask. Up first is the orcish assassin Zarek. It says, Zarek is an assassin without honor or conscience. Unusually short of stature for someone of orcish heritage, he might pass for an ugly, beardless dwarf were it not for his rotting tusks and grayish pallor. The only thing he loves is money, and he wouldn't hesitate to stab allies in the back if they came between him and the riches he covets. Up next is Zargish. Zargish is a particularly interesting character, not because he's a cleric. Clerics are a dime a dozen, right? But because he is a cleric of Orcus, uh, as we know from our episode on Demogorgon, Orcus is a demon prince, and he has promised to transform Zargish into a vampire after a lifetime of faithful service. Zargish is described as twisted beyond any hope of redemption. It also adds in his hobbies include slaying the living and animating the dead. You know what? I like video games and playing D&D to each their own. Say la vie. I'm not going to yuck anyone's yum. You do you, Zargish. You're living your best life. Next is Skyla, who, according to Wild Beyond the Witchlight, has actually left the League of Malevolence, but is opening to rejoining under if there's under uh, if there's new leadership to be had. Uh, she is sometimes known as Charme and has forged a warlock's pact with Baba Yaga, which is where Skyla draws her magic. One of the hourglass coven, Endolin Moongrave, foresaw Skyla's allies would one day turn on her. Was the hag correct? Hard to say, but it was after this prophecy that Skyla broke away from the League and actually began working for Endolin herself. So the hourglass coven sister definitely benefited from her prediction. Anyway, in previous iterations, some type of relationship, platonic or otherwise, was indicated between her and Warduke, and this alliance was meant to one day usurp Kellic of power. Speaking of Kellic, he is the leader of the League of Malevolence. He is a human sorcerer who is known for his bald head and his long white beard. Like, honestly, if it's, it's kind of like an evil wizard stereotype. If you looked up evil sorcerer in the dictionary, there's probably a picture of Kellick with the word example underneath it. He is described as a greedy, narcissistic sociopath who revels in chaos, but is a coward at heart. 
the fact that he's highly intelligent makes him even more dangerous. It's always the smart ones you got to watch out for. I've, al- I've always said that. I've always said that. Uh, much like War Duke and Strongheart's history, Kellick has a history with Strongheart's ally, Ringle Run. And not just any history, but the, um, the, the, the exact same history. Yeah, it's pretty much Ringle Run and Kellick were homies until they found the Hearthstone and Ringle Run's good nature was confirmed and amplified while the little jerk Kellick actually was, was got turned up to 11. I mean, I guess I can forgive them for using the ex- exact same backstory because these characters were written, you know, for kids who watched cartoons and played with toys. But then again, I watch cartoons and I play with toys. So I don't know. It's lazy at best. So there you have it, the League of Malevolence, which brings us to our magic item of the week. So we all love wands, right? Wands are great. Wands allow the sneaky rogue or even the brutish barbarian to get a little taste of that spellcasting juice that mages get to do every day. And some wands can get used by anyone. Some are restricted to class or some other trait. Some require attunement. Some don't. And wands are great because they can be so versatile. So this week, I present what I think is the most versatile wand of them all, the cornucopia wand. So this wand, which can be used by anybody of any class, does require attunement. But beyond that, it's fair game. And it comes loaded with 20 charges of... 20 different spells spells between first and sixth level and i will leave it up to the dm to determine how to decide which 20 perhaps selectively picking out each and every one or perhaps getting a list of all first through sixth level spells from fifth edition and there are a little over 400 of them and start letting the dice do the picking for you Regardless, once the 20 spells are decided, they're then numbered, 1 through 20, obviously. And then every time the player wants to use the cornucopia wand, they roll a d20, and whatever spell comes up, they use. Perhaps it's just the spell they needed, or perhaps they're going to need some on-the-fly, outside-the-box thinking. Perhaps that's not the spell they want, but maybe they can figure out how, how they can use it to their advantage. Either way, should be fun. The Cornucopia one, dear listener, if you use it in your campaign, give us a shout on Twitter at dndlorecast or via email dndlorecast at gmail.com. Let us know how it went. Well, that about wraps it up this week for the DND Lorecast. Dear listener, if you want to know more about Warduke and his involvement with the Horn Society, uh, plus a little something special, uh, the Patreon plus bonus content will be available in just a few days. Of course, this, as well as so much more uh, swag uh, content, uh, 
perks and benefits. All of this is only available to our patrons. So if you're interested, check out patreon.com slash dndlorecast. We have tiers ranging from five bucks all the way to 75. Discussed in the middle of the show what each of them come, you know, the perks that come with each of them. I personally feel that um, it's worth your while if, if you're able to, if you're interested and able to do so. Once again, mentioning the raffle that we are currently holding, more information on that, what's included, how to purchase tickets uh, will be in the show notes. So check that out. Also in the show notes are links to all the other podcasts that myself and Crit are involved in. Uh, TTRPG Live Plays for D&D, for Vampire the Masquerade, for Cyberpunk, for Cyberpunk Red, or other lore casts like uh, The Legend of Zelda or Resident Evil. Um, just if there's, there's definitely something for everyone. If you are listening to this show, there's probably another show that we work on that you will enjoy. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. It, it's so humbling that you allow us to be a part of your day, be a part of your week for just a fraction, you know, for just a little less than an hour. But um, it, it does mean a lot. So we thank you for that. And fare thee well, dear listener. And until we meet again, may all your 20s be natural. Thanks for listening to the Dungeons & Dragons Lorecast. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with a friend, following us on Twitter at DNDLorecast, or jumping on the Robots Radio Discord to chat more with us about Dungeons & Dragons. We'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows for interesting people. Check out all the shows at robotsradio.net.